Okay. Well, good morning. I appreciate you guys um, letting me come in clutch when Joe's gone. <laughs> uh, I know it takes a lot to put up with that sometimes, but <laughs> I do appreciate it. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, the Lord will speak to us this morning. You know, I always end up talking about things that I always feel completely inadequate <laughs> to talk about. They're things that I'm struggling with usually. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's the beauty of, of the Word. We can turn to it, and we don't have to have all of the answers, and we don't have to be perfect, and we can still just talk openly about what God is doing and, and what His Word says. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, and I want to talk a little bit about peace. So when you think about peace, what do you really think of? And, and if I was just to be brutally honest, I would say that the older I've gotten, the more difficult it is for me to find and attain peace. When I was young, I didn't think about it much, and things just didn't really matter that much to me. But I struggle sometimes just to remain in, in peace. And I'm not talking about the world's idea of peace, which we'll discuss just a little bit, but, but peace that God gives. So what is it? Is it the absence of something, or is it the presence of something? Some people think peace is the absence of war or conflict, and, and that can absolutely be true. That would be what we would call peace. Or maybe it's the absence of chaos and noise. You know, maybe you think about just going somewhere, maybe outside to be alone, just the breeze and the trees and, and away from all the noise and the chaos. And, and you can kind of find a level of peace in that. Others think that peace is an inner feeling of tranquility or, or quietness. Sometimes people try to achieve that by emptying their minds of any anxious or negative thoughts. I'm all for that. <laughs> If we can empty our minds of anxious and negative thoughts, there is a certain level of peace that we can find. Others think peace comes by emptying their minds of all thoughts. <laughs> People refer to that as nirvana. And they sit and try to just find this blissful, this complete emptiness. But is that really what God wants us to do? See, I think God wants to fill us, not just empty us. So people talk about world peace, personal peace, inner peace, all of these different ideas of peace. And all of these things are great, but how is peace to be achieved and maintained? And again, you may leave here today thinking, well, he didn't give an answer to that. <laughs> I don't know. We'll just see what the Lord does. But, um, more importantly, what does God say about peace? And so as we, as we dive into the Word a little bit here this morning, before we do so, let's just pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. We know you are the living God, the one true God, the creator of all things. There's nothing, Father, that you don't know. There's nowhere that you aren't present. And just that in itself should bring peace to our lives and to our existence here. 
And God, we just pray that as we open your word, you will speak, Holy Spirit, and help us to even just take just a, a glimpse, just a small understanding of what it means to have peace in you. And, and I think it would be like a thimble full out of the ocean, Lord, of our, of our ability to understand. But help us to do that and to to be able to live that way with peace in our hearts and in our minds and to be at rest no matter what's going on around us. And we can only do that when we press into you, Father. So we ask that you would teach us how to do that, help us to be faithful and to trust you. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Bible mentions the word peace more than 420 times in the King James Version. So it's not, you know, it's not insignificant how much that it, the Bible talks about that. God's Word um, discusses peace in so many ways in so many places. And you've probably heard, uh, like, the Hebrew word for peace. Does anybody know what that is? Shalom, right? Kind of used as a, as a greeting. But you know what it really means? What does shalom really mean? The actual definition of it talks about completeness or wholeness. And it's like so many words in the Greek or the Hebrew, when translated into English, it's just hard to do it justice. They could use a word and it would be more like a phrase. There's so much depth to some of it and so much meaning there. And so we have to use sentences to describe what one word would, would convey. But the word shalom really means completeness or wholeness, when I, which I found very interesting when I looked at that. <laughs> well, that's not necessarily what I've always thought when I thought about peace and a greeting of peace to someone. You know, I, I bid you wholeness. I bid you completeness where you lack nothing. And how is that attained? The Greek word is less familiar to most people. It's the word arene. It means oneness. Quietness, rest, it's the idea of unity. It's bringing parts together to make a whole. Something that might be disjointed, bringing that together into completeness or wholeness. Unity. And you really, I think, to understand that word for peace, you have to think in terms of reconciliation. Things being reconciled back together to bring peace to a situation. We get our English word serene from that Greek word irene. So biblical peace is not just the absence of something or just the presence of something. In a way, it's both. It is the absence of conflict, possibly, but it also requires action that leads to restoration. I think there's a great story we're going to look at in 1 Samuel 25, and I don't know, um, as we put some verses up here in a minute, I, I'm not sure if the version, we're trying to figure out if the version I'm reading from, if they actually have that or if some of the words are different. So if they are, just kind of bear with us and we'll get that figured out someday and I'll get a version that works for everyone. <laughs> but this is the New American Standard um, that I'm reading from. I think it's the New American Standard. Uh, yeah, it's the New American Standard. Um, but there's so many different New American Standard versions, translations. So we kind of had a mix up there, but so bear with me as we go through this. But 1 Samuel 25, 
So Samuel, uh, the Old Testament prophet, had died. And uh, you might remember that Samuel was the one who went uh, to Jesse the Bethlehemite. So he went to Bethlehem where Jesse lived with all of his sons. And his, his uh, purpose that day that he went there was to find someone to replace Saul, the king. And so he was observing all of Jesse's sons. He was going to pick a son to replace Saul. And so Jesse parades all of his sons out here in front of, of Samuel, and none of them were the right one. And so Samuel says, well, you know, is this all you've got? I mean, I'm sure he, they were all, you know, probably big, rugged, handsome young men, intelligent. And, and none of them were adequate. None of them fit the bill that he was looking for, that God was looking for. So it's kind of like, well, all right, Jesse, is this all you have to offer? Do you have any other sons anywhere? Well, there's one more. He's just a little guy. I mean, he's great, you know, but he's not king material. He's just out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, uh, go get him. <laughs> and, of course, we know the rest of that story. He was the one, and Samuel anoints David, and he becomes king eventually. So uh, there definitely was a connection between Samuel and David. So when Samuel died, David, it, the Bible just says he went down to the wilderness of Paran. And, so, and that was kind of in the upper Sinai Peninsula. So he um, probably was in mourning <laughs> of, of what had happened. But he's down there. And, and, of course, David didn't go anywhere without an army with him, his men that were under him, uh, in, under his command. And so he goes down to the wilderness of Paran, and there's a wealthy man that lived down in that area in a place called Carmel. And his name was Nabal. And <laughs> interestingly enough, incidentally, the word, the name Nabal means fool. <laughs> and as we go through this story, you'll see he lives up to his name, 100%. So Nabal, a very wealthy man living down here in this area that David finds himself with his men, one day he's shearing sheep. So it's harvest time. He's got 3,000 sheep he's shearing. And Nabal had a beautiful, intelligent, and gracious wife named Abigail. So David had heard that Nabal was shearing sheep in Carmel, so he sent 10 of his men... Ten young men in his name to Nabal. And the message that he sent with them was a message of peace. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 6. This is the message, part of it, that David sent his young men to Nabal with this message. Have a long life. Peace be to you. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. So again, you know, shalom, completeness, wholeness be to you and to your house and to all that you have. What a great greeting, kindness. And David also, along with that, told his men to point out how they had been protecting Nabal's shepherds while they were out in the wilderness. This was an area that likely was full of Philistine raiders, so protection was often needed. And so while the shepherds of Nabal are out tending the sheep in the wilderness, David's men are there, and they're offering protection to them. And so this had probably gone on for quite some time as these sheep are being raised up. Now they've been brought in, and the shearing process is going on. So let's, uh, let's pick up in verse 7, verses 7 through 11 of 1 Samuel 
25. Get on the right page here. Verse 7. Now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. So this has been a period of time. And David's saying, we never took advantage of your shepherds. We were never unkind to them. We didn't steal from them. We didn't really ask anything from them. We were just there, and we offered protection. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. So a, a day of harvest or the sheep shearing and, and things that would go on like that, were, it was not uncommon for that. There would be festivities, almost like partying that would go on, a lot of sharing that would go on. So it's not out of order in this culture for David to ask Nabal for some food, some drink for his men, especially after everything they had done without requesting anything from Nabal. So he says, he points out, we've come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, and listen to this, what an insult. It's not like he didn't know. He said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Well, he, he would have known David, and he would have known Jesse. There are many servants today who are breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? All of that likely being a complete lie. Nabal knew who David was, and he knew who Jesse was, and he probably knew they had been out there offering protection to his shepherds, but yet he's just so insulting. And that's why I say he lived up to his name. He's a fool. And, and the Bible really describes him as just a, a cruel, heartless man. And we see that in this section of Scripture. Deeply insulting to David and his men who had offered protection to Nabal and to his shepherds and to his flocks. It's no way to repay someone for their kindness. So David is deeply insulted and angered and you can see why rightfully so you know and David David is uh, in charge of a company of men here and and Nabal says he refers to him just there are many servants out there all trying to run away from their master well David's not in the, that's not the, that's not a description of who David is at this point in his life and Nabal knows that it's just an insult for no reason Let's pick up in verses, uh, verses 12 and 13, 1 Samuel 25. So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all of these words. They told him what Nabal said, and what is his reaction? David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David. So he's taken 400 men with him to, to meet Nabal. <laughs> And you can kind of get the idea that he's not happy. This is not going to end well for Nabal and his men. So 400 men go with David and 200 stay behind with, with the goods, the baggage. And then Abigail, Nabal's wife, is informed by one of Nabal's servants of what is about to take place. <laughs> I mean, this whole household is probably about to be slaughtered. That's the picture that we're getting here. 1 Samuel uh, 25, verses 14 through 17. But one of the young men told Abigail, 
Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us. So he's telling the history of what had taken place here. While we're out taking care of the sheep all of these months or however long this had been, they were good to us. They never insulted us. They never took anything. And we didn't miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. And listen to verse 16. They were a wall to us. They offered protection. Both night and day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So they couldn't even go to Nabal and tell him what was taking place or what was about to happen. No one could even approach him, except one person, Abigail. She intervenes. And, and that is a, a lengthy section. I'm not going to read it. It's verses 18 through 31. I would encourage you to go and read that later, maybe today, this afternoon. Go out under a tree, find some peace, and read this section of Scripture. But what I do want to do is I just want to kind of uh, point out what Abigail did. And then you can go and read it and see uh, that these are the things that she actually did. So rather than read it, we'll just kind of go through it uh, just for the sake of time. But she handled herself well, and she made peace in this situation. And one of the things she did, she wasted no time. She did the right thing, and she did it quickly. And I think sometimes when we have situations that we could, we could act in, we could bring peace to, we could bring reconciliation to, we let doubt creep in, and we think, well... What about this, or what about that, or what if someone doesn't handle it well, or react, or understand what I'm trying to do, and we talk ourselves out of it. She wasted no time. She did the right thing, and she did it quickly. And if she had, the result could have been very negative. So that's one thing she did. She wasted no time. She jumped right in as a peacemaker. She offered gifts to her enemy in an act of kindness. So everything that David had requested from Nabal, she did it. She did what should have been done by Nabal to start with. So she offered gifts to her enemy. And, and the way that this section reads, she just gathered all of this stuff up for 400 or probably 600 men. He had 200 back at camp. She gathered all this stuff up quickly. So we get the idea that Nabal had surplus and lots of it. And it was just, she just threw all this together and she's ready to go with these gifts. So she offered gifts to her enemy in an act of kindness. She did what Nabal should have done. She did not involve Nabal. He was the instigator in this. And she likely knew that involving him would have just made matters worse. So she didn't even involve him. She just did this on her own accord. She was brave enough to get involved. Now getting involved in messy situations can be risky, right? We like to avoid that. I know I do. I just would rather avoid it than get involved sometimes. But Abigail had courage. She got involved. We don't know how people will respond. But sometimes not getting involved can be a whole lot worse. Right? So she knew she needed to do something and she did it. She humbled herself before her potential enemy. David was going to annihilate Nabal and his men. 
And she humbled herself and she bravely went to him. And it describes how when she saw him, she got off of her donkey and she basically bowed herself before him and offered these, these gifts. Conflict usually arises out of pride. So more pride is not going to help. And she understood that. She was willing to take the blame for what her husband did, even though she wasn't a part of it. Can you think of anyone else that's ever done something like that? She was willing to take the blame for what her husband did, even though she was not a part of it. There's a man named Jesus who took the blame for what the whole world did, even though he was not a part of it. What a picture of humility and grace that we can see in this simple story. She was honest about her husband's responsibility in this. She did not candy coat it. <laughs> Matter of fact, she pretty much said, the, the old fool is acting the fool. She didn't candy coat it. She was honest about it. You know, she didn't try to say, oh, well, David, you know, he didn't really mean it. Can you, you know, whatever. She just said, hey, Nabal's acting the fool here, and, you know, we're going to try to make peace. And then she states what she hopes and expects the outcome will be. And I find this really interesting. So we are going to read this one verse here in the middle of this, verse 26. She actually states what she hopes and expects the outcome will be before it has happened. So verse 26, she's speaking to David. Now, therefore, my Lord, and that's little, little L, Lord, as the Lord, big L, Lord, lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood, and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. So she talks about what she expects to happen. She speaks about David in a way that she knows he can be and not in regards to the way that he is being. I thought that was a really interesting approach. A lot of faith in that, really. She asks David for forgiveness. And she speaks of David's good character, even though right now he's not really acting in that character. He's, he's intending to kill Nabal and all of his men. That's his purpose. That's, I mean, that's the sole thing he's going out to do. But she speaks of his good character, even when he's not acting in that character. And the outcome was positive and peaceful. Verses 32 through 38 wraps up the story. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernments. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly... Remember, she didn't hesitate. She acted in the situation. Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one man. We were going to kill everybody. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, the gifts, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. There's our word. So I have listened to you and granted your request. Let's see. how far. Yeah, through 38. 
Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with wine, or within him. He was drunk, for he was very drunk. She did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. So she's going to let him sleep this off. It came about in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, he sobers up, that his wife told him these things. She told him everything that had taken place. He was unaware of all this. He was unaware of what David was about to do until the next morning when he sobers up and she tells him. And his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. So perhaps he had a stroke. <laughs> you know, maybe he had a heart attack. We don't know. But it says, 10 days later, it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So he lived like a stone for 10 days, probably comatose, and then he died. But the outcome was positive and peaceful. There was reconciliation that came because of Abigail's actions. She was a peacemaker. So Abigail displayed the fruit of the Spirit including peace. Remember, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. And that's a capital S, Spirit. Those things come from God. True peace comes from God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said this, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord of peace. See, peace, true peace comes from God. Quietness, rest, unity, reconciliation. It's different than sitting under a tree and emptying your mind of all thoughts. It's being filled, <laughs> filled with the Spirit of God. It's replacing, you know, driving out the angst, the anxiety, the discord, and filling, being filled with the peace of God. Quietness, rest, reconciliation. In John 14, 27, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. This is not peace that the world can understand. If you're outside of Christ, you're not going to understand peace on this level. Are you hearing me? <laughs> I, I don't know if this thing is on or off. It's kind of crackling. Um, Jesus gives true peace by offering true reconciliation. The world doesn't know peace like this, so don't look for it in the world because you're not going to find it. There's kind of an example of the worldly idea of peace we see through the prophet Jeremiah. He had warned of impending doom for Israel because of their sin. But it wasn't just the sin of the people, it was the sin of the priests and the prophets. And one of the things that God was upset about was that the prophets glossed over Israel's sin. In Jeremiah 6.14, God says this, They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. 
Remember, worldly peace is not the same thing as the peace from God. They healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. There had been no reconciliation or unifying or repentance. Yet the priests and the prophets were just saying, oh, peace, peace, it's okay. And I want to share with you out of the message version, Jeremiah 6, uh, actually verses 13 through 15. I love the way that this reads in the message version. Everyone's after the dishonest dollar. Little people and big people alike. Prophets and priests and everyone in between. Twist words and doctor truth. My people are broken, shattered, and they put on band-aids, saying, it's not so bad, you'll be just fine. Other translations say, peace, peace. But things are not just fine. Do you suppose they are embarrassed over this outrage? No, they have no shame. They don't even know how to blush. There's no hope for them. They've hit bottom, and there's no getting up. As far as I'm concerned, they're finished. God has spoken. You wonder why the people didn't like Jeremiah? <laughs> he told the truth. So you can't just go with the fake peace. You can't just go with, well, what's good for you is good for you, or what's true for you is true for you, and maybe it's different for somebody else. Truth is truth. And Jeremiah spoke the truth. True peace only comes from God. And you know, he gives us peace in trouble. Paul wrote to the believers at, at Philippi saying, and you know this uh, passage very well, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, God's peace, we can't even... <laughs> when you experience it, how do you explain it to someone else? Unless they experience it too, they can't grasp it. Spiritual things are spiritually attained. And that's what we're talking about here. True peace that comes from God. It surpasses all comprehension. And it will guard your heart and your mind in difficult times in Christ Jesus. And Jesus said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Isn't that the key? And after talking to his closest followers uh, about his coming death and resurrection, that's what he said to them. These things about what's going to happen, I've spoken to you, that in me you'll have peace because the times are going to get rough. When you find out what they're going to do to me, he was saying, <laughs> you're going to need the peace that only comes from me. In this world, you'll have tribulation. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Perhaps the reason Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace is because he deals with the root of the problem, which is rebellion and sin. 
It's sin and rebellion against God that results in lack of peace. The, the separation caused by sin leaves us in turmoil. And human pride just perpetuates the problem. So just like Abigail, we have to humble ourselves. When someone lacks an eternal perspective, they can never truly know peace. But when you know that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again on your behalf, everything changes. The things of this world suddenly don't seem so important or overwhelming. And I think one of the greatest promises of Jesus that brings tremendous peace is found in John 14, 1 through 3. And you may find this strange, I don't know, but to me, this is one of the greatest reasons we can know we have peace. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. You talk about a promise that can bring peace to any situation. If you're suffering intense persecution, if you're about to be put to death for your faith, you can live that final moment in total peace because of that fact right there. That this world is not my home. I am passing through. I'm an alien in a strange land. And my Heavenly Father, in His house, I love how the Bible says, in God's house are many mansions. Big, big house. Anybody remember Audio Adrenaline? The band? Yeah. Big, big house. Oh, well. Some are too old. Some are too young <laughs> to remember that. <laughs> but in my father's house are many mansions. God has a big, big house. He has a big kingdom. And he's preparing a place for you and I if we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. The reason that verse brings such peace is because it reminds us that this world, with all of its problems and struggles, is not our home. If you've never known peace, you can experience it today. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I promise you, you will have peace like you've never known. So as the girls come and worship, if you need to do that today, if you need to have that kind of peace and say yes to the one who died for you, don't let another day go by without doing that.